0: Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with How Stuff Works and iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And in our last episode, I was talking about General Electric, and I was really focusing on the origin of the company and its first two decades of its existence, and... Over the next few episodes, we're going to start picking up the pace a bit and exploring the full history of the company and why in recent months, that is, as of August 2019, some analysts have expressed concern for the integrity of the company. This is not a new development, actually. GE has had some struggles over the last decade or so, but... Eh, we haven't gotten there yet. We're still pretty early on in its history. And there's a lot I could talk about, including advances in some of the basic technology that GE was built off of. For example, in 1913, a physicist and chemist named Irving Langmuir proved that by filling light bulbs with an inert gas like argon, it would not only extend the useful life of the tungsten filaments inside the light bulb, that's the part that actually lights up in the light bulb but it would also prevent the inside of the light bulb from turning black as it got an internal coating of what's essentially soot from the tungsten langmuir would make numerous contributions to science and would ultimately receive a nobel prize in chemistry in 1932 though that wasn't for light bulbs anyway another thing that happened in 1913 was that charles coffin who had been president of the company, would become General Electric's first chairman of the board of directors. Edwin Wilbur Rice, who had studied under Elihu Thompson at Central High School in Philadelphia and who had worked for General Electric since the very beginning of the company, became the new president of GE. Rice had more than a hundred patents to his name and had a strong hand in guiding how General Electric's manufacturing facilities operated. He was one of the founders for GE's research laboratory. Not a bad pick for a president of the company, someone who could direct the operational aspects. Under Rice, General Electric continued to expand its business, and it acquired other companies as well as Experiencing growth on its own. In 1918, for example, GE acquired the Pacific Electric Heating Company and the Hughes Electric Heating Company. So, GE then formed a new division within the company itself called Edison Electric Appliance Company. Around that same time, GE also acquired the Trumbull Electric Company, which created and supplied parts related to the electric utility industry, such as switchboards. So, really still investing in that world. And to be fair, electricity and infrastructure was still very slowly rolling out across the United States, and GE had a very large hand in that. In 1919, General Electric became one of the founding companies to create the Radio Corporation of America, or RCA. And I covered this in the episodes I did about RCA. So the super short version of this is that leading up to World War I, the United States military pretty much commandeered the radio communications industry in the U.S. Now, at that time... Radio stations weren't broadcasting entertainment and news and sound over to radios. There were no consumer radios. This was really all about sending wireless telegrams. So most transmissions were just limited to Morse code. Now, there were a few early radio broadcast pioneers around this time as well, but it was very limited. Now, the problem was, at least from the U.S. military perspective, that many of these communication stations, these radio transmitters, were actually owned and operated by companies that were from outside the United States. And the First World War was driving home how important it was to have a secure communications network within your own borders. So The U.S. military, namely the the U.S. Navy, ultimately wrested control of those transmission stations away from foreign companies and then used them for wartime communications, for official military communications. But once the war was over, the government needed to figure out what to do with all these transmission stations. So rather than operate them as government-owned entities... The government reached out to several companies, U.S. companies, including General Electric and also Westinghouse, AT&T, and the United Fruit Company. Yeah, I'll have to do an episode about the United Fruit Company at some point. It's a pretty interesting and controversial story. Anyway, it was this group that would form RCA with each group partner in the group holding a certain percentage of the ownership of RCA, General Electric held the majority stake. Didn't hold a 50% stake. It was more like 30%, but it held more interest in RCA than any other party did. In 1921, uh, we saw something pretty darn cool. Well, I didn't. I wasn't born yet. But the world in general saw something pretty cool in 1921. GE built a supercharger for an airplane. So there was an engineer named Sanford Moss who came up with this idea. He had this hypothesis that fuel would burn better in a chamber with compressed air. It would actually produce more energy. It would be a greater energy output with compressed air inside the chamber. And it turned out that this hypothesis was correct. And so using that knowledge, he designed what was called a supercharger to produce a lot more power in an engine. Now, a plane with one of those superchargers would set an altitude record at the time, and it reached a new altitude of 40,800 feet, or about 12,400 meters. Obviously, we've left that way behind now, but at the time, that was a significant achievement. In 1922, GE's own radio station in Schenectady, New York, with the identity of WGY, would go on the air. The station had a 1,500-watt transmitter. Now today, that station is owned by the company I work for, iHeartMedia, fun little fact, though it has also changed a bit since 1922. For example, the transmitter today is at 50,000 watts, so that's a big change. And the wattage pretty much determines how far the transmissions can go. It gets a little more complicated than that, but that's a general rule of thumb. Also in 1922, Rice would step down as president of the company and a guy named Gerard Swope became the new president of GE and pushed the company to produce more consumer appliances. So this is really the era where GE started to seriously get into the consumer appliance manufacturing business, stuff like refrigerators and electric stoves. So while GE had made a few consumer products over the previous 20 years, it hadn't really seriously delved into that market. And then in the 1920s, that all changed. GE-branded appliances became more and more common. So who was this Swope fellow? Well, unlike Rice, he wasn't at General Electric at the very start of the company. And technically, Rice was actually... In the precursor company, he had worked for the thomson Houston Electric Company that preceded General Electric. But Swope wasn't like that. Nope, Swope was a newcomer. He originally joined GE in 1893, one whole year after the company was founded. Pfft, Johnny come lately. Okay, I'm being a bit cheeky. Swope had joined the company as a helper while he was still in school. That's sort of like a a gopher, someone who did whatever it was that needed doing at any given time. His starting salary back then was an entire dollar a day, a princely sum. Presumably, he was making a bit more than that by the time he took on the role of company president in 1922. And I don't mean to suggest his employment at GE was unbroken from 1893 to 1922. That was not the case. He left GE. He was attending MIT. He graduated from MIT with a degree in electrical engineering. And then he took on a job for Western Electric, which is a company that's even older than GE. Swope had also served on the United States War Department general staff during World War I. He aided in the procurement and supply operations for the Army. Charles Coffin brought Swope back over to the fold at GE in 1919. Now, as the president of GE, Swope would do more than just push the company into manufacturing more consumer appliances. He was also concerned about employee benefits. Under his leadership, General Electric began to implement employee benefit programs such as voluntary unemployment insurance, profit-sharing programs, and a cost-of-living wage adjustment program. Swope would serve as the president of the company twice, in fact. In his first run, that would stretch from 1922 to 1940 meaning that Swope also led the company as the entire world went through the Great Depression, a challenging time for everybody. And just to stick with this for a second, I should explain who Swope's successor was and why Swope would return to serve as president a second time. Because generally, when you hear that someone left as president and then had to come back as president, it sounds like something really wrong happened in the interim. That's not exactly the case. So. In 1940, Gerard Swope retired, and Charles E. Wilson, who had first started working for GE, uh, specifically a GE subsidiary, when he was 12 years old and had been with the company pretty much ever since. He actually completed his education by taking night courses. Wilson was promoted to president in 1940, and he led the company for about two and a half years, but then a different president called on him. That president was Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who wanted Wilson to join the War Production Board as vice chairman. The United States had entered World War II in December of 1941, and there was a pressing need to devote manufacturing capabilities toward producing equipment and weapons for American soldiers. Wilson responded to the request and he left General Electric. So Gerard Swope came out of retirement and once again led the company until 1945 and World War II's end. At that point, Wilson returned to GE and resumed his role as president of the company for another five years. Now, the reason I decided to follow that particular trail and kind of move away from the timeline for a second was again to illustrate how important General Electric's business had become. It was integral to the modernization of the United States, and GE's manufacturing facilities were formidable both for their industrial businesses and consumer appliance businesses. No wonder the president looked to GE for help in manufacturing and acquisitions for wartime production. Okay, so let's get back to the timeline and learn what GE was doing during all those years. One note I saw pop up on several sites was that in 1924, GE opted to exit the utilities business because of antitrust concerns from the U.S. government. But despite my searching, I couldn't find any other information on that, and I just saw essentially the same timeline popping up on multiple websites. So that suggested to me that they were all pulling from a single common source. Now, this does not mean that the information is wrong. It might be right, and I just wasn't able to find corroborating evidence of it. But because I couldn't find any confirmation outside that list, I got a little leery of it. So I'm including this whole story in this podcast simply to point out that it can be important to look for those corroborating sources that really indicate that you're looking at true information and you're not just looking at somebody's list that is unsupported and other people have just copied that exact same list and put it up on their own websites. That does happen. It happens a lot. So you'll actually find uh, a lot of plagiarism out there on the internet. You'll be looking at a source for information. You'll be reading up on a paragraph and you think, all right, that's interesting. Let's see if I can find any more data about this and you'll do a search, and a different website will pop up. You start reading that, and you think, well, this sounds really familiar. And if you put them side by side, you realize this is exact, exactly the same language. And there's no indication that, uh, that it was done on the up and up. Now, occasionally, someone will write a piece, and it will all be agreed upon that that piece will be distributed to different outlets. But a lot of times, People are just taking whatever they think is cool or interesting or will drive traffic and they'll just put it up on their site without asking. That's not cool. Anyway, back to GE. There were a couple of big important events that definitely happened in 1924. Um, Whether GE got out of the utilities business because of antitrust issues, I can't speak to because I couldn't find anything about it. But stuff that got started or happened in 1924 Uh, There were some important things. Uh, One of those was a lawsuit that would go all the way up to the Supreme Court. Now, let me explain. In the United States, GE held the patents for pretty much all the basic components for the light bulb. That is, they had a patent on the tungsten filament and the gas-filled bulb and all this other stuff. Westinghouse had entered into a licensing agreement with GE so that Westinghouse could produce and, more importantly, sell light bulbs. In return, GE said that Westinghouse would have to set its prices for light bulbs according to GE's direction and that it would have to follow certain quotas. In other words, GE was using its power to say, you can sell light bulbs based on our designs, but they have to be at this price and you can't make more than X number of them because that would eat into our own profits. And GE said, we can change our our price at any time for any reason. And that's really the issue that went to court. Now, what the courts would ultimately find, and the Supreme Court decision would come down in 1926, is that typically if you license out a patent, if you've invented something and you've got the patent for your invention and someone asks to license your invention, typically you cannot dictate a price for a product made from your patented invention. However, in this case, GE had not just licensed out the right to manufacture light bulbs, it had also licensed out the right to sell light bulbs. And that meant GE could determine other things like the selling price of the light bulb. At least this is what the court found. And this is one of the more controversial business-related decisions made by the Supreme Court. It's been challenged several times and upheld a few times, sometimes with just a split court decision, like split right down the middle. It means that you could potentially patent an invention and then not only license it out to other entities, but you could dictate at what price those entities could sell your invention. So you could, in theory, produce your own products and sell them for a lower cost than your competitors could because of your demands. And thus, you are undercutting them while you're simultaneously licensing your invention to them. It's pretty cutthroat stuff. Now, there are limitations on this. The Supreme Court essentially said patent holders can only do this if they themselves are also manufacturing the product. So you couldn't just come up with a cool invention, get it patented, and then just sit on that patent and wait for people to license your ideas and then tell them how much they have to sell the product for. Uh, that's off limits. You have to actually be actively using that patent yourself. So patent trolls would not be able to do this. But again, it shows how GE's business would end up shaping the world around it. I've got a lot more to say about General Electric, but before I get to that, let's take a quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Earlier I alluded to the fact that a couple of big things happened in 1924 and they both had to do with light bulbs and that's ironic because this next big thing was really shady. Executives from GE attended a meeting in Geneva, Switzerland. That meeting was also attended by representatives of companies like Philips and the Compagnie de Lamp and Osram. All of these are light bulb manufacturers or were at the time they signed a document that was titled Convention for the Development and Progress of the International Incandescent Electric Lamp Industry. But the agreement has a more sinister nickname, the Phoebus Cartel. Now, Phoebus is another name for Apollo, the god of the sun. So that's fun. But what this group was doing was working out a global agreement about the manufacture and sale and design of light bulbs. And that agreement divided up the world into regions assigned to the various members of the cartel. Each member would have its own region to lord over, and it would have a quota that it was supposed to stay below in order to meet manufacturing needs and to meet the needs of all the members of the cartel. But more than that, the group actually determined that the useful life of a light bulb should be 1,000 hours. They were collectively agreeing to limit a light bulb's lifespan. And this is called planned obsolescence. And it's a pretty shifty way to ensure continued success. Essentially, it's when a company builds a product that is only supposed to last a certain amount of time, And it comes along with the expectation that the customer who buys your product is going to go out and buy a new version of the thing that just broke. So these companies could make better light bulbs. In fact, they had already done that. The average light bulb lifespan in 1924 was already 2,500 hours, so 2.5 times as long. Now they were going to work to reduce that lifespan in order to drum up more business. Light bulbs burn out faster. People have to go back and buy more light bulbs. It was making their own business by making the products worse in a way. And because it would be an agreement across multiple companies around the globe, there'd be nowhere else to go. Insert maniacal laugh here. Interestingly, though GE was crucial to forming this cartel. It was part of the meeting that created it. GE itself was not a member of the cartel. It did, however, own interests in nearly all of the companies that were members of the cartel, and it did have one subsidiary, a British subsidiary called International General Electric, that was part of the cartel, but the overall company was not. Companies in the cartel had to send light bulbs to a testing facility in Switzerland to make certain they were manufacturing bulbs with the right lifespan. And like I said, they were given those strict quotas. If you sold more than your quota allowed, you would get fined. You would also get fined if the light bulbs you made didn't last long enough or worse, lasted too long. This really did happen, and the plan was for the agreement to last until 1955, so it was a 30-year agreement. The only reason that didn't actually happen was because of a little thing called World War II. But yeah, that's a heck of a thing to learn about, and GE engineers really did work on ways to decrease the useful life of light bulbs for various products, including flashlights. They were saying, well, you know, flashlight flash bulbs, they they last... 3 whole changes of batteries right now. Let's reduce that. (laughs) They got it down so that the light bulbs would only last two whole sets of batteries. And then eventually got to a point where the light bulb's lifespan was about the same length as the useful lifespan of a set of batteries. (sighs) That's the way progress works, I guess. Anyway... Uh, it, it's a, it's a heck of a thing to read about and it, it does kind of stink, but I get it from a sales perspective. I mean, if Willy Wonka had actually made an everlasting gobstopper, he'd only have to sell one to each kid and then he would have innovated himself out of business. He would never sell any more. Why would he? Everyone already has one and it never gets smaller. <laughs> that that's that's inventing yourself out of business but still there's something particularly sinister about a company or group of companies that agree to build into their products the intent for those products to stop working after a certain amount of time forcing people to go and buy a new one it's not super cool on a less conspiratorial note in 1927 GE was one of a few companies to demonstrate a live TV broadcast Now, earlier in 1927, AT&T had demonstrated a a long-distance broadcast of its own. GE's claim is that their demonstration was the first to broadcast to a television in an actual home, as opposed to a demonstration theater or a showroom. The broadcast came from GE's radio station, WGY, and the TV was in a home located in Schenectady, New York, in GE's headquarters. The television was not an electronic television that had just recently been pioneered by Philo Farnsworth that same year. This was actually a mechanical television, meaning there were actual moving parts inside the television, but I've talked about that in several earlier episodes of Tech Stuff, so... I'm just going to move along here. In 1928, the Radio Corporation of America, in which, remember, GE owned a large stake, created the NBC networks. Now, technically, they were two networks of affiliates. So you had two NBC networks. There was NBC Red and NBC Blue. So you could say GE had partial ownership of NBC at this time, though that wouldn't last for very long for the time being. That's because in 1930, the U.S. government began to investigate GE, Westinghouse, and RCA for monopolistic practices. The antitrust investigation was followed by formal charges and a long period of negotiation. And ultimately, the parties agreed to RCA becoming its own incorporated company, and the various partners, including GE, would divest themselves of their shares in RCA. In addition, GE and Westinghouse had to agree to stay out of the radio broadcast business for two and a half years in order to give RCA a chance to stand on its own. And boy, howdy, did it ever. But that's covered in other episodes I did not too long ago. We'll get back to both NBC and RCA later on in this series. For now, let's talk about plastic. Plastic was something that had been around for a while Uh, synthetic plastic was a relatively new idea. There are natural plastics, but those are limited because it's hard to get to them and you have to do some processing. It's not very efficient. So synthetic plastics was something that people really wanted to be able to to develop because plastic is incredibly useful stuff, but you have to have a more efficient way to make it. That had been experimented with as early as the mid-19th century, But the first fully synthetic plastic was developed in 1907. It was called Bakelite, by the way. And companies since then had been working to try and find cheaper, more efficient ways to produce synthetic plastic because it could be put to so many applications. GE was one of those companies. And throughout the 1930s and into the 1940s, GE engineers worked on lots of different experiments to develop synthetic plastic. Uh, It was around this time that James Wright, an engineer for GE who was trying to make synthetic rubber, ended up developing Silly Putty. So you may remember that from a recent Tech Stuff episode. Corning would end up beating GE to the punch as far as the development of silicone goes. The two companies were in fierce competition to try and develop it first, and Corning came out ahead. But GE was able to create a more efficient manufacturing process and ended up being extremely successful in the market as a result. So Corning developed it, and GE figured out how to make it more efficiently. In 1935, GE introduced the first electric household food waste disposer called the Disposal, This is a garbage disposal, which mounts beneath the drain on a sink. And the idea is that there's a spinning disc or impeller plate under the drain, which has some protrusions on it. And turning on the disposal activates an electric motor that then spins the plate rapidly. And the spinning pulverizes the food or whatever else is down the disposal and turns it into a slurry that can get washed down the holes on the outer edge of the disposal and then down into the pipe system of your house. And it also would create an effective means of creeping out audiences in horror movies because we all know what happens when a character is at a garbage disposal. Something important, usually a ring, is going to fall down there and then they're going to put their hand down the drain. Even as we all scream, don't put your hand down there. Anyway, the disposal went on sale in 1935. I should also mention that GE did not invent the garbage disposal. That honor goes to John Hams. Not John Ham, who's a great actor, but John Hams. He invented the device in 1927 and filed a patent for it. Though, as far as I can tell, he wasn't able to go to market with a device until after GE had already introduced the disposal. Also in 1935, GE provided the lamps for the first Major League Baseball night game, which took place in Cincinnati, Ohio. The Cincinnati Reds played the Philadelphia Phillies, and they won 2-1. Night games actually were really important. They helped transform the sport of baseball. It meant that folks who worked during the day could still have the opportunity to watch a game live in the evening. And it boosted crowd attendance and gave a healthy dose of oomph to the sport. And, of course, other sports would follow suit. Throughout the 1930s, the company continued to work on multiple industries. GE introduced more consumer products for the average Joe, and the company also worked on high-tech components for airplane and car engines for a more, let's say, elite clientele. Howard Hughes himself used a GE supercharger in 1937 to set a transcontinental air record. He flew across the United States in seven hours, 28 minutes and 25 seconds. In 1938, the labs at GE managed to reinvent the company wheel, by which I mean the light bulb. The invention was a fluorescent lamp, which works a different way from incandescent lamps. An incandescent lamp creates light by using electricity to heat up a filament until it gives off light when it incandesces. And that's the basic premise behind all incandescent lights. But a fluorescent lamp is different. The idea for fluorescent lamps was actually a few decades old. But the challenge was to create one that was practical, from both a use case scenario, as in this is giving off enough light for me to do stuff, and also from a manufacturing standpoint. Dozens of people worked on solving these problems, and a lot of people made various contributions, so there's not one single person I can point to as being the inventor of the fluorescent lamp, which is a bit of a relief since it means I don't have to explain that so-and-so invented this and then walk it back and say, okay, well, actually, it's way more complicated than that. I'll explain how fluorescent lamps work when we come back from this short break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with at and in-car Wi-Fi. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed.
2: Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC
0: podcasts. If you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts season two of Technically Speaking, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so fluorescent lamps. There's actually a few different types of fluorescent lamps, but I'm going to focus on hot cathode lamps because that was sort of the earliest ones that were uh, able to be manufactured for the mass market. And typically the lamp is a long glass tube and inside of this long glass tube, there is a coating of fluorescent powder on the inside surface of the tube. And also inside the tube is low pressure argon gas. And there's also a little bit of liquid mercury in there. Um, this is why handling fluorescent lamps is a bit dangerous. Well, That's one of the reasons. Another is that They're tubes made of glass, so breaking one not only releases a small amount of toxic chemical to the environment, it also can cut you up pretty badly. Now, a hot cathode fluorescent lamp has two electrodes on either end of the tube. So you have one on one end, one on the other end. Both of these electrodes are cathodes, meaning they both contribute electrons into the tube, though they do this one at a time. It's another example of thermionic emission, like with a vacuum tube where you heat up a filament and it starts to give off electrons. A pulse of voltage creates an arc between the cathodes, starting from one cathode and traveling to the other. An alternating current makes the arc go one way, then it goes the opposite way many times a second. AC works better for fluorescent lamps than DC, direct current, because it means one electrode will act as a cathode and then the other electrode will act as the cathode and they'll switch back and forth and that creates a more even lighting within the lamp. If there was one side that was just always the cathode, that side would be much brighter than the other side. That's what you would get with direct current. So that's why fluorescent lamps work best with AC electricity rather than dc now getting the arc started can be a bit of a challenge especially with those early bulbs it requires a spike of high voltage and you can think of voltage kind of like pressure so in a hydraulic system in a water based system like a pipes it's the more pressure you put behind the water forcing water through the pipe system faster with a fluorescent lamp the higher voltage forces a current to flow from the cathode across to the other electrode. But the gas inside the tube actually resists this. And the colder the gas is, the more it resists the current. So it might take a few false starts to get that arc actually going. And there are a couple of different ways of doing that, including like preheating the gas. These are all things that would be built into the lamps themselves. It's not something that you would have to do in addition to that. But that whole discussion deserves its own podcast. So the arc will vaporize the mercury that's inside the tube, turning that liquid mercury into a gas. And as the arc passes through this vaporized mercury, it gives off ultraviolet light. But hey, I hear you say, ultraviolet light is outside the visible spectrum for we puny humans. Ha ha ha, puny humans, I say. That is true. And that's where the fluorescent powder coating the inside of the tube comes into play. Stuff like phosphor will give off light or fluoresce, or if you really want to make it easy to understand, you could just say glow when exposed to certain types of energy, such as ultraviolet light. So the light given off by the vaporized mercury is invisible, to we puny humans, but the light given off by the fluorescing phosphor isn't, and that's how fluorescent lamps generate light. GE engineers figured out how to make the fluorescent light bulb in a way that was efficient and suitable for actual applications, as opposed to interesting lab experiments. And the fluorescent lamp had some distinct advantages and a few disadvantages compared to incandescent lamps. For one, it was more energy efficient, It required less energy to generate an equivalent amount of light. So we measure the amount of light given off by stuff in units called lumens. And we measure electricity in watts. The typical incandescent light bulb produces 16 lumens per watt of electricity. A fluorescent light bulb might produce between 50 to 100 lumens per watt. So in other words, you don't have to use nearly as much electricity to get an equivalent amount of light out of a fluorescent lamp. That's oversimplifying, but it gets the point across. Which means you save money in the long run by using these fluorescent bulbs instead of incandescent ones. Fluorescent bulbs also last longer, usually 10 to 20 times longer than incandescent bulbs. Granted, I also just talked about how companies were actively working to limit the useful life of light bulbs. So part of the fluorescent bulb advantage was really because companies were purposefully planning out the obsolescence of the incandescent bulbs. So yikes. Fluorescent lamps also generate less heat than incandescent lamps do. So that was another area where they were superior. And they diffuse light very well. But they also had disadvantages. One was the environmental hazard I talked about. There's stuff in fluorescent bulbs, namely the mercury, that you don't want getting out into the general environment. They are also more expensive than incandescent bulbs. And they can't, without special adjustments, be used with any sort of dimmer switch. They also flicker slightly, usually too fast for most of us to pick up, but it can drive some people a little bonkers. Like, If it's slowing down a bit, because as bulbs get closer to the end of their lives, they can flicker more noticeably, it can cause discomfort Uh, for people who have epilepsy, it can can trigger epileptic uh, episodes. So there are some other dangers with this stuff. And maybe you end up being affected uh, psychologically uh, by the way these lights give off light. You could end up like Joe in Joe versus the Volcano and you might believe that you've got a brain cloud. But seriously, there are folks who just swear by the fact that fluorescent lights generate a light that is unpleasant to them and they much prefer the warmer light from an incandescent bulb. In 1939... A remarkable woman named Catherine Burr joined the GE Research Laboratory. She was the first woman to be part of the GE Research Lab, and she developed a non-reflective glass. It was nicknamed invisible glass. The glass would become the basis for all sorts of applications, such as for camera lenses and for telescopes, you know, stuff where you want to minimize or eliminate reflection as much as you possibly can. So hats off to you, Ms. Burr. That was... Pretty incredible. In 1940, GE began to relay TV broadcasts from New York City to its television station WRGB, which was in Schenectady, New York. And this would set the path for the development of television networks, TV stations that would end up carrying the broadcast of neighboring stations. And this would follow the path that was pioneered by radio networks like NBC. Now, by this time, much of the world was already involved in World War II, and as it became more apparent that the U.S. would likely become involved as well, the government, and particularly the military, began to seek out innovation from American companies to augment the military capabilities of the United States. GE would work on many of those projects, including the design and production of the first jet engine in the United States, called the IA. Now, I should stress that this was not the first jet engine in the world. Other countries had already produced jet engines, but it would be the first one designed and produced in the United States. It was largely based off the design of a British jet engine called the Power Jets W.2B. The IA was essentially a prototype jet engine, the result of about a year of R&D and production. It would lead to a production model called the General Electric J-31. This would become the first mass-manufactured jet engine in the United States, and it would be used in aircraft like the Ryan FR Fireball and the Bell P-59 Era comet. The U.S. officially joined the jet age. In 1943, General Electric also introduced an early form of autopilot, a system designed to keep an aircraft on a specific course. I've done a few episodes mentioning how these systems work. I might need to do an update on that. But in 1943, it was a pretty rudimentary system designed to hold a steady course and make minor adjustments. Also in 1943, General Electric formed another division within the company called GE Capital, which is a financial services company within General Electric. It was sort of evolved from an earlier division called the General Electric Contracts Corporation. That one formed in 1932 as a way to help customers purchase GE products through various finance plans, because that was around the time of the Great Depression, so... People who wanted appliances couldn't really afford to to buy them outright, so GE formed this as a way to help customers pay for stuff and still be able to sell consumer goods to people. GE Capital pretty much picked up where the contracts company had left off, but it would become a truly enormous company in its own right. Later on, when I get to more recent years, we'll talk about how it was one of the major bits of the company spun off when GE encountered major financial difficulties. But just as a sneak peek, at its height, this company by itself, the the GE Capital Company, had assets exceeding $637 billion. So yeah, big business. In 1945, General Electric demonstrated the first commercial use of radar, a technology that had been developed in Europe and which was of considerable importance in wartime. GE used radar to show how it could help vehicles, even non military ones, navigate through darkness. And in 1946, the company would design and produce the world's most popular jet engine. It was called the J 47 capable of providing up to 5,000 pounds of thrust per engine. The company and others licensed to produce the J-47 would build more than 30,000 of the things over the following decades. And this engine was used in lots of different aircraft, including the Boeing B-47 Stratojet, uh, the Martin XB-51, the Convair B-36 Peacemaker, and the Republic XF-91 Thunder Scepter in addition to many others, and if I ever get fired from tech stuff, I want to get a job naming jets because that seems like it's a pretty cool gig. In 1949, the U.S. courts ruled on a case that had been working its way through the system for the better part of a decade, and it all had to do with patents about light bulbs and lamps. The argument was essentially that through the control of patents, GE was restricting competition and practicing monopolistic company policies, which was a big no-no and in violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act. The court decision stated that GE had made numerous Undeniable contributions to the advancements of technology in general and the light bulb in particular, but it had also used its leverage to, quote, insulate itself from competition, end quote. The findings cited numerous smaller companies that had been in the lamp manufacturing business but had either gone out of business or were entirely beholden to General Electric as licensees of the company's patents. And the ruling essentially stated that all those patents on lamp and lamp parts should be, quote, dedicated to the public, end quote. And so General Electric was compelled to release its patents on those particular technologies. Um, The company certainly had performed in ways that gave it all the advantages, which, again, from the perspective of a company, seems like a no-brainer. You want to give yourself every chance at success. But from an external perspective, it looked like GE was a big bully. And so that was how this decision came down. In our next episode, we'll look at how General Electric played a big part in the space race And we'll try and skip over a whole bunch of other stuff because obviously this is going at a pretty slow pace. And for a company that's more than 130 years old, it's going to take us a while if I only take it in 20-year chunks. Uh, But in the meantime, if you guys have suggestions for other topics I should cover, whether it's a company, a technology, a product – maybe a trend in tech or just a general concept in tech and you want to know more about it, send me an email. The address is techstuff@howstuffworks.com. Pop on over to our website. That's techstuffpodcast.com. You'll find an archive of all of our past episodes there. You'll also find links to where we are on social media. And you'll find a link to our online store where every purchase you make goes to help the show. And we greatly appreciate it. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything.
1: Sumo Play.